Praise be Jesus Christ. First of all, congratulations to Nathan. He certainly didn't like to give up the devil, but I guess many people would prefer the devil than having to do good all the time. But it's important to do good all the time unless you fall asleep in the Lord and you wound up keeping company with the devil for the rest of your life, of your spiritual life down there in the pit, you know. Not a good idea. So whatever God wants, do it. So congratulations to Nathan and Maria. And I pray for them that they can live their baptismal promises. And it, we, they can do that if we pray for them and set a good example for them. It's hard, isn't it? It's difficult. It's what's required. If we give in to our passions and don't live an ascetical life, we're doomed. Just doomed completely. See, uh, the other day, I was reading about our Lord, and of course, he wants us all baptized. We heard that from Matthew's Gospel. That was his farewell address when he ascended into heaven. And uh, he said, Go therefore and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then it's added to that, and I will be with you to the end of the world in another gospel. And he means uh, it's going to be difficult, but you can do it with my help. But without his help, we give in to our passions, and they lead us astray. So if you ask somebody, so how do you live a Christian life? I meet all sorts of people all over the world that told me they were Christians, but they were not. I could tell right away they were not. They thought, well, I'm a good fellow, or I'm a nice lady. That doesn't make you Christian. Jesus, they asked him in the gospel, what? What should we do to love you? If you love me, keep my commandments. Oh, you mean I'm not free to do what I want? No. Keep my commandments. That means asceticism. The greatest example in the Gospels of asceticism is John the Baptist. And they call him the friend of the Savior, the friend of the Lord. He wore, he wore strange garments. He was very, very, very ascetical. Out in the desert, covering with the skin of an animal. He ate strange food. They were discussing it in the monastery yesterday. What did he eat? And they, he said, well, uh, locusts and honey. Well, they, was, he eating, was he eating insects? No. There is a locust tree. It has a big bean on it. And he was eating that and honey. In other words, he was eating whatever he could find in the wild. And he spoke words about the Lord Jesus. 
He must increase, I must decrease. He was so famous that in the early church, you see the debate going on, even in the Bible, whether who's greater, John or the Lord. But John says, I'm not worried to uh, touch a sandal, kiss a sandal. He must increase, I must decrease. But he was preparing the way of the Lord, which was the prophecy of Isaiah that the Lord would come to us, the Messiah, and deliver us. There's lots of that in Isaiah. We read it at Christmas time, we read it. We all should sit down and read it and figure out why it's repeated in the New Testament by the Apostolic Church. It's to remind us of what, who the Lord Jesus is. He's the Son of the Father. Now in the Ascension, in the gospel, it says the Lord went up in a cloud. And we say, well, we think about that. We say, well, there must have been a cloud in the sky. And uh, he got on the cloud and he rode up to heaven. No, 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 no. The cloud was the cloud Shekinah, the appearance of the Lord in a cloud. Trinity, and he went up in that cloud. It was a theophany a manifestation of God taking his son up to heaven. Our life is short. I can testify to that. I've lived a pretty long time and had fairly decent health and had a terrific career. And God's been with me in all these things. And my mother, she would try to straighten me out once in a while. And she says to me, she says, you know, you think God's going to do everything for you. I said, well, Mother, who taught me that? She said, well, I did. I said, well, did you mean your words? How can you get God to do everything for you? Be his shaliak. It's Aramaic for slave. Be his slave. Do everything he wants. So after I was ordained, then it was a magnificent thing. I was like Paul. I didn't know if I was in heaven or on earth. I just loved every minute of it. And I had a great day. I was in New York City. My whole family was there. They took me out to dinner at the New York Hotel, at the Stylite Room, way up there, you know, in a skyscraper, a very fancy meal. When I had to get back to seminary before 10 o'clock to get ready to go celebrate my first liturgy the next day. I was floating. I was on that cloud. It's not always that way. Sometimes you say to yourself, well, where are you, God? He's right there. But you're not listening. Most people, when they pray, they tell God what they want. You should be asking God, what do you want? Well, well, I want this, I want that, am I going to... I was eight years old when I received my vocation to the priesthood. I'd been very sick. I almost died a couple times, but I didn't for some mysterious reason. 
God didn't want me to die. It wasn't time. And uh, I was waking up from appendicitis surgery, and I'd seen the light in the tunnel. I'd seen the light, the heavenly light, the Taboric light. And my mother looked at me laying there, and they had those the wagons they pushed you around on, you know, in the hospital. She's looking down on me, and she says to me, you're going to be a priest, aren't you? I said, yeah. Now, from that point forward, I fought with God. Because I thought, well, it'd be nice to be a father. So I talked to God. I said, well, I wouldn't mind being a father and having children. They're sort of fun. God did not listen. I'm a celibate priest. Now, mind you, we do have married priests in our church. But he wanted my whole heart. You're a married man. Your first obligation is to take care of your family. If you're a married priest, your first obligation is to take care of your family. If you're a celibate priest, your only obligation is to make God happy. But when you saw the chrismation today, the oil of chrism was blessed by the bishop. I keep it in the tabernacle with the Holy Eucharist. It's very sacred. Holy Spirit's in it. And that was personal Pentecost. So people say, well, when do we experience what the apostles experienced at Pentecost? When you're chrismated, baptized and chrismated. You're chrismated, you're given gifts. They're infused. They're called theological gifts. Faith, hope, and charity. You have them automatically given to you by God, but you have to use them. So I have in my closet upstairs a beautiful violin. I used to play in a symphony orchestra. No more. When I went in the seminary, I had to sort of give that up because I had to take more time to study. Didn't have time to practice. Practice the violin and play it well. Well, not excellent. Well, takes four or five hours a day if you're going to say, play a concerto. How long does it take to learn a concerto, a violin concerto? Five years. Play it to perfection, to get up in Carnegie Hall and play a concerto. It has to be your complete dedication. So God gives you these gifts. How long is it going to take you to really use them? Faith, hope, and charity. It may take you a lifetime. People have passions. It's from the fall. Our ancient father, Adam, decided to eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Who needed that? We only knew good. But there was another tree there, the tree of life. But he said to the angel, Gabriel, 
Take them out of here before they eat of the tree of life and live forever. On our, our, our altar area here, we have a seven-branch candlestick, just like the temple of old. This is our temple. It has seven lights on it for life. Fire comes to us in chrismation, as it did on the apostles in the day of Pentecost, and sets us on fire. You've met people who are on fire with God. They want to talk about him all the time. They want to talk about their love, their love affair with God. God, our faith, is a love affair with God. Not a passion, a love affair. And it will eat you up and make you a saint. But not unless you cooperate with the gifts he gives you and live an ascetical life. Now, I'm a priest a long time, 52 years. I've met a lot of people, majority of them struggling, struggling to do what God wants them to do. There was a young boy about 18 years old or 20 years old, and he went to a monastery and he's this monk, he'd watch this monk. This monk every day would take a walk around the lake, around the monastery. And he wanted to know, he says, so he got bold and he went up to speak to a monk. Because let's face it, monks are strange people. You're not used to them. And he said, what do you do in that monastery all day? He says, we fall down and get up again. In other words, do battle with their temptations through prayer, and if they fail, they stand up again and do God's will. So we know from the revelation that there is two types of energy in God, creative energy, that's why we're all here, and deifying energy, that what makes a person holy. And today we've initiated these two people in the holiness of God. But it has to grow, like the baby there. It has to be nurtured, it has to be taught, it has to be fed on the sacraments so that he can grow and be a great holy man. And you know, Marie is in the middle of her journey. She's had a rough journey. We have to pray a lot for her. But she's going to try. If we don't try, we don't repent, we don't go to confession, we think we could do it on our own, we're in trouble. We cannot. Some of the most successful people I have met, generals, princes, people in government, I met all those people because I don't know how it happened, but I wound up in the United States uh, Air Force as a chaplain with a red passport. That means you're a diplomat. And I got to go to a lot of embassy parties, parties in the military. You know, the military has its own um, culture, and you have to live that culture. 
It's a different world. And you have to know how to fill a party. You have to know how to entertain. You have to know how to be a gentleman. Well, the president made me a gentleman. I got a paper on the wall to prove it. But anyway, you have to do the same things for Christ. Now, those people I met, who were the most successful? I think the faith-filled were the most successful. I think that those who were living a very devout life and doing a very good job for the United States government, it was magnificent. Just recently, I got a call from Germany for a gentleman. He's in the Army, and he is uh, in diplomacy. He writes position papers and things for that for his bosses. There are three generals. This is very difficult right now with America to know exactly what to put as a position paper for the generals. We are at a crossroads in America. Don't let that happen in your life. Always follow your conscience, what Christ is teaching you and the church is teaching you. I'm not saying the people in the church are perfect. They are not. But the first step about everything is to know you're a sinner and that you have to reform your life through prayer, fasting, and generosity to your neighbor and to the church. I find in America, I like the West Coast a lot. It's too, it's too hot and sweaty over there on the East Coast, but they have a lot more culture than we have out here, but the weather's better. Even in the winter, it's better. People complain about the mountain. Mountain weather's not bad. You should be in New York in eight foot of snow, and then you know what bad is. But anyway, uh, getting back to the homily, these people are post-Christian for the most part. But they have a few Christian values that are left. And one of them is being kind to their neighbor. I like that. But now, I want to remind you, you must be kind to yourself. By keeping the Ten Commandments, the Beatitudes, and following the prayerful example of our Lord, who went out to the mountain and prayed to the Father all night on a few occasions. He was tempted. We told Satan, be behind me. He would say, well, he was God. Of course he was God. But are you not participating in his life by the fact that you received the sacraments? And are you not, as the Bible says in Paul, the mystical body of Christ? You are. The mystery of life is a human being, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man and died on the cross and sanctified us by his blood and his death and his body. And that body and blood were taken up to heaven. We remind he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty in heaven. He sits there with the Father, a human being, but God, second person, blessed trinity, who can go in to see him? Only archangels stand around the throne. 
He sits on the cherubim. They can't see him. But he looks down upon us. And he prays to the Father. What is he, how does he pray for the Father in heaven? He shows them his hands and his feet in the side where he died on the cross for us. This was the priest and the victim. Why? For you. And you benefit when you receive the Holy Eucharist when you're baptized and chrismated. You're incorporated in his prayer. So when you pray, Christ prays. When Christ prays before the Father, you're in his prayer. You're part of his life. That's the meaning of the incarnation. So this day in this little temple, we have experienced another miracle. Two Christians were born. We pray they will follow their vocation and not tell God what they want, but listen and do what he wants. Name the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.